You know, uh, when it's my turn to preach, I always struggle with what the Lord would have me say. And usually I pray, I always pray intensely during the week, and it's usually Thursday or Friday before I sense from the Lord the direction where to go. This week's a little different. Wednesday night, Bill and I were sitting at Quiznos prior to the Wednesday night prayer meeting, and I said, you know, Bill, I'm having an awfully hard time praying about the sermon My mind is so full of the Sunday night seminar, the research I'm doing, I can't get Catholics and Mary and uh, Irish immigrants and Mennonites and everybody out of my mind to to pray about the sermon. He said, well, remember last Sunday what the young men said. Now, you know, every other Sunday, every fortnightly, we have a meeting of young men of the church. Dave and Bill and I sit with them. And... uh, we call ourselves Knights of the Square Table. I think it was uh, Kirk Wester that came up with the acronym COST, so that's a little easier. But last Sunday we said to them, you know, we've been meeting a long time. Is there anything we can do to help you grow spiritually? Uh, anything we're not doing? Now, frankly, I think Dave and Bill and I thought they were going to say things like, well, we'd like for you to meet with us and have lunch weekly or engage in some intense Bible study. That's not what came out. It was this. Uh, We'd like to hear sermons on some foundational topics. Uh, Why TCF is the church it is. As a matter of fact, as they began to talk, they were describing the sort of things that we have in the membership orientation class. And Bill said, you know, Jim, why don't you next Sunday just talk about that? Maybe why we have elders. You could do that in your sleep. I'm not asleep today. (laughs) But uh, this morning, uh, we're not going to bring a sermon. We're going to bring a Bible study. And if you don't like what I'm doing, blame Bill and cost. (laughs) TCF desires to be a New Testament church. That means that we are doing the best we can under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the study of God's Word to duplicate in the 21st century what the church was like when it was under apostolic guidance, the church of the first century. Now that involves four things. It involves, first of all, New Testament church life. How can we have the kind of life in our church that was present in the church of the New Testament? Secondly, mission. What was the mission of the church in the New Testament and how can we have that same mission? Thirdly, doctrine. What were the doctrines that they considered essential and those things on which they would not compromise and how can we be faithful to those today? And fourthly, church government. How was the New Testament church led? What was the government of the New Testament church and how can we be faithful to that today. This morning we want to talk about the fourth of these, the pattern of New Testament church government. And I trust you'll follow along in your Bibles as we uh, look at scriptures today. Initially, the apostles themselves were the government, the governing body in the church. If you read from Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 11, those 10 chapters, you will find that in every case, the only government of the church consisted of the apostles. 
They did everything. They handled the treasury. They handled all the money. You'll notice in uh, Acts 4, 33 to 37, and with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Abundant grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as had need. Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Acts 5, 2, again, the money laid at the apostles' feet. And so they even handled the money the congregation gave, and they took that money, and they distributed that money among the congregation according to those who had need. Now, there is a point later when the task became too great, and they did appoint deacons to oversee that, but that was a managerial thing. The government was still the apostles. And then suddenly, without any explanation as to their origin, we find elders in Acts eleven twenty nine, And here's the basis of that. There was a famine that was taking place in Judea. And the Christians were having a very hard time in Jerusalem. And so the church in Antioch, some distance away in a more prosperous area, they were not experiencing the famine. And so they took up an offering, and they sent that offering to help the brothers in Jerusalem and Judea. Acts eleven twenty nine, And in the portion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. Then notice this. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul, not to the apostles, but to the elders. For the first time, we find mention of a group of individuals called elders. We have never seen them before. Up to this point, it has been strictly the apostles as the government of the church. We don't know when these elders were selected. But we must assume that by the guidance of the Holy Spirit that the apostles then appointed certain ones to be elders in the church of Jerusalem. From that time on, never again was the government of the church in Jerusalem consisted of apostles. From that time on, it was always apostles and elders until the apostles were all martyred or left town and after that it was the elders. Let's notice, when... There was a controversy over whether or not Gentiles could be added to the church without first becoming Jews. And that was a great controversy. And Barnabas and Paul had traveled through a portion of the Gentile world and they'd preached the gospel and many Gentiles had come to Jesus, but they had not first become Jews. And so there was controversy in the church. In order to resolve the controversy, the church in Antioch decided to send Paul and Barnabas with some others to Jerusalem, where that might be resolved among the church there. Acts 15, 2. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem and notice to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. 15, 4. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Acts fifteen six. 
the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. Acts 15, 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders, and so on and so on. Acts 15, 23. They sent this letter, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren of Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. So here we see no longer the government in the Jerusalem church being just apostles, but it was apostles and elders. And as the years went by, the apostles began to leave the city, take the gospel here, take it there. James, for example, was beheaded, some were killed, and in time, the only ones left in leadership were the elders and Jesus' half-brother, James. In Acts 21, 18, Paul traveled to Jerusalem. The following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. And in time, even James was gone. He was martyred. They threw them off the temple, and he was killed. And so only elders left to lead the church in Jerusalem. And that's the pattern that we see from this point on. Now some would say, yes, but that was just among the Jewish churches because the Jews had the synagogue and elders led the synagogue. But notice this. As Paul traveled about in the Gentile world planning churches, he ordained elders in every place among Gentiles and Jews. Acts 14.21. Here's a case of where Paul and Barnabas had left Antioch. They had gone to Pisidia and they moved north city to city and preached the gospel. Every place they preached, the Jews tried to kill them. At Lystra, for instance, they stoned Paul and left him for dead. Next day got up and walked to Derby. So a miracle obviously happened. But every place they went, they preached the gospel. And then when they had finished that journey and decided to head back to Antioch, notice the record in 1421 of Acts. After they had preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, this is Antioch, Pisidia, not the Antioch from which they had originally come, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And this was Paul's pattern. Paul never considered a church to be fully established until elders had been ordained to oversee that church. When Paul in his journeys could not stay behind until that was done, he left a delegate behind to stay there until that delegate could uh, hear the word of the Holy Spirit and ordain these men as elders. When Paul was released from his first imprisonment, he immediately embarked once again on missionary activities. And he and Titus went to Crete. And Paul had to hurry on, but he left Titus behind. Notice in Titus 1.5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. The same was true with Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So whether in Jerusalem or among the Gentile churches, the church government that we find 
consistently in the New Testament is a council of elders in every church. There was always plurality, not just one. You'll notice in 2 John 9, Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence and John was rebuking him. So there was not a pastor existing in any church. It was always a council of elders leading the local body. Now, there's only one leadership group also. Many of our contemporary churches, I suppose most churches, have a pastor that oversees them, and that pastor has a bishop who is over several churches, and then in association with that pastor, sometimes beneath him, there is a council of elders. So you have three tiers that is totally unknown in the New Testament. In the New Testament, all three of those terms if we use the old English terms, bishop, pastor, uh, these are all for one group of men. Notice in Acts 20, verse 17. Paul was traveling back to Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost. When the ship arrived in Miletus, if we think in terms of air uh, air travel today, that was a hub. (laughs) And so when the ship arrived in Miletus, Paul and his companions disembarked, And they waited then for a ship that would leave Miletus and take them back toward Palestine. So they had to wait for the ship. And of course, when the ship arrived, they had to wait for the winds to be the right direction. Paul wanted to have a meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus, which was about 25 miles away. Now, he knew if he left Miletus and went to Ephesus and then came back, he might miss the ship and therefore not be able to travel on to Palestine on the schedule that he wanted. So from Miletus, he sent word to Ephesus and said, Elders, come to me. I want to meet with you. Acts 20, 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, I was with you the whole time. Now notice he is talking to elders. And then in verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, or if you're using the old English term, bishops, to shepherd, if you're using the old English term, pastor, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So here we see the three terms, the word elder, presbyteros, the word overseer, episkopos, the word to be shepherd, poimino. All three of those terms applied to the same group of men. Some are not, yes, you're bishops and you're pastors and some are elders, but there was a group of elders who he said, you are the overseers and you are the shepherds. All three terms applied to the same group of men. Paul did the same thing with Titus, Titus 1.7. Here he uses the term, or rather it's Titus 1.4. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, in the verse we read earlier, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you set in order what remains and appoint elders in every church as I directed you. And then notice in verse 7 he calls these elders overseers. For the overseer must be above reproach, and so on and so on. So in Titus, you find these two terms applied to the same group of men. 
Peter's uh, letter to the elders of Peter, 1 Peter 5, 1 and following. We'll not bother to read that. It's interesting that the term pastor is used in reference to church leadership only one time in the New Testament. And that's in Ephesians 4.11. And there it's clearly a job description. God gave to the church apostles, and there's there's a petition in the Greek, uh, uh, prophets, and then there's a petition in the Greek, evangelists, and then there's a petition in the Greek, and then shepherd teachers. And the old English word would be pastor. In my opinion, we should totally do away with the term pastor because the pastor conjures up in the minds of people something that is totally different from what the New Testament means when it talks about church leadership. Let's use the term shepherd, which we understand as as meaning what it truly means rather than some kind of ecclesiastical title. So in the local church, the primary leadership group consisted of a council of elders who were responsible for the oversight and the shepherding of the flock. Now, there are biblical qualifications. Paul wrote to Timothy to guide him in that selection in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, he describes in, he must be, uh, 1 Timothy 3, he must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, some say, can you have women elders? Uh, Not unless you believe in same-sex marriage. Must be the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. One who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If he doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a new convert, so he'll not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil, and so on and so on. And the same kind of qualifications Paul gave to Titus in first Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. And again, 1 Peter 5, some similar things. Now, let me look at a little history of TCF. When... TCF was first led by pastors. There, was, uh, there were two prophetic brothers passed through at one point and said, you're saying you're New Testament church. If you should be a New Testament church, then you should have elders. And so the brothers who were leading the church at that time thought, well, then we better have some. And so they read through these qualifications and tried to pick men in the church who were qualified and name them elders. Most of them were not elders. Just meeting the qualifications is not sufficient. There has to be a calling of God. The Holy Spirit makes men elders. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, the Holy Spirit has made you this. And so just because someone is qualified doesn't mean it is the will of God for them to become an elder. The Lord himself sovereignly has to make that choice. And you've been around a while, remember how hard we've worked at trying to do that. For instance, when there was a sense that we should add an elder and we didn't know who, and the elders, the existing leaders prayed together and it seemed that it should be Bruce Clutter. And so Sunday morning we came to the church and said, God has witnessed that we need to make, add an elder. We're not going to say one or ten. And we want you to spend the week in prayer 
and then bring back next Sunday on a piece of paper the name or names that God has given you in prayer. Now, don't write down anything that hasn't come to you in prayer. Did you know, and this is amazing, every piece of paper had Bruce Clutter's name on it. Isn't that astounding? (laughs) How could we deny that the Lord God had made this man an elder? And the next time, when it was time, we did it again. (laughs) And again, the three men that the elders felt God, the three men that God, the elders felt that God had made elders were chosen. And that was Jim Grinnell, Joel Vazanin, and Jim Barger, who then later took some folk to help start a church in, in Seattle. Uh, the last time we prayed and prayed, and we just had a sense in our hearts that it should be Bill and Dave. And that time, you know, God doesn't like us to have formulas, because if we have a formula, we don't have to depend on him. So that time we came before the church and said we feel that God has spoken to us that these two men should be elders. Pray about it this week. Anybody who has a negative witness, let us know. No negative witness came. But the point being, we must make certain that God, through the Holy Spirit, is the one who leads and chooses those who bear that heavy responsibility because it is a responsibility. First of all, overseers. That means that the elders have under their purview everything that happens in this church. Now, according to the pattern in Acts 6, they may choose deacons to take care of some of their responsibility. Elders delegate to deacons a portion of their responsibility and give them the authority to function in that area. TCF, right now, we're not using the title deacons, but we still have them. We have the missions council. Those are deacons. They're taking that area of the elders' responsibility and working with it. We have the women's ministry council, the men's ministry council, other councils. Really, these are deacons who are taking some of the responsibility of the elders and fulfilling that role, accountable to the elders, of course, for how they do it. Ruling the flock, what an interesting responsibility. First Ephesians 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Most uh, view that having to do with financial support. But 1 Peter 5 says, even though you're ruling, don't lord it over the flock. Don't lord it over the flock. And there was a time, I think, in the history of our church where we did see some lording over the flock. Guarding the flock. We read that passage in Acts 20 to 28. Be on guard for yourselves. Uh, because after my departure, savage wolves will come in, so on and so on. And in Titus 1.9, able to refute those who teach false doctrine. Let me say, of all of the things that elders sometimes have to do, this is the thing that you like to do least of all, and yet you have to do it. Sometimes when I'm teaching on eldership to a group of men who are prospective elders, I illustrate it this way. If you're going to play baseball, you're going to get your uniform dirty. If you see somebody on the bench with a clean uniform, that means they haven't been in the game. If you're going to play baseball, your uniform gets dirty. If you're going to be a leader in the church, sooner or later your reputation is going to get stained and you can't do a thing about it. Because at times there will come into the body 
someone who perhaps is a charismatic teacher of some sort, and they'll bring some word and people get all excited about it, and you elders know that that is not good doctrine. You can't leave it alone. You have to stand up and refute that to the church. And when you do that, there are always some in the church that have been enamored by this great teacher, and they're going to get mad at you, and they're going to go around and talk about people, and they're going to gossip about you. And your reputation will get stained. But before God, have a stained uniform instead of a clean uniform that's a result of just sitting on the bench. Elders must be able to teach. 1 Timothy 3.2 It doesn't mean that all elders are called to make teaching their main activity. Some are, some aren't. That's what... They talked about those who work hard at teaching and preaching. That's the role of some more than others, but all must be able to teach. As shepherds are concerned with each individual sheep as well as with the corporate body, and their lives must be an example to all who are in the flock, 1 Peter 5, 3. And then anointing with oil and praying for the sick, James 5, 14. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they're to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now notice, here's a key thing. Call for the elders of the church. Do you know of any medical doctor that starts at one end of a block and starts knocking on doors? Is anybody sick? I might have some antibiotic with me that might help you. No, you call for the doctor. And so if you're sick, it's your responsibility, if you want prayer for the elders, to ask for it. And then the elders will pray for you and anoint you with oil. Now, there are times when you're in the hospital by a patient and there the assumption is you're going to pray and anoint with oil. But the congregation needs to take the initiative. And, of course, as we've said, sadly, Church discipline obviously falls within the realm of elders since they're overseers of the church. Now, the flock, according to God's word, needs to have respect for the elders. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember those who led you. Now, this is the present participle in the Greek. It really reads better. better. Remember those leading you who spoke the word of God to you Considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. You know, some weeks ago when I spoke and talked about the Apostle Paul saying, follow my example, and I commented, I don't think I would have the hubris to say, follow my example. After church, James Kuhn came up and he said, you know, I disagree with you. Any elder ought to be able to say, follow my example. So, without pride and recognizing that each elder is fallen, each elder does try to live an exemplary life. And then, as we say, anointing with all, praying for the sick, and so on, 1317, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Now, interestingly, the word 
that is rendered obey is the Greek word pytho. And pytho has the idea of persuading. And here it's in the passive sense, so it says, allow yourselves to be persuaded. Here's another interesting thing. This is the word that is used for two wrestlers who in a wrestling match, and one finally gives up and says, I yield, (laughs) you win. (laughs) That's the word pytho. Now, we certainly don't want to think the elders are wrestling with you, and you finally have to say, you guys win, I give up. But uh, the concept is allow yourself to be persuaded. Don't try to win an argument or a debate. And then 1 Timothy 5.19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so the rest also may be fearful of sinning. This can be understood two ways. One way is if an elder is guilty of sin and there are two or three witnesses who substantiate the charge and it's proven to be true, then that elder needs to be publicly rebuked before the body that everybody gets the point. Sin will not be tolerated in this church. I would leave a church for only these reasons. If there's sin in the leadership and nothing is done about it or if false doctrine is being taught. Other than that, I'm locked in. But we cannot tolerate sin among leadership. Neither can we ignore sin in the body. That's one way this can be understood. Another way it can be understood is if somebody is going around gossiping about elders, they should be rebuked publicly so that everybody will stop doing that sort of thing. When I was at Bel Air Christian Church, we had constitution and bylaws, articles of corporation that govern, that determine what the church government structure was. It was legally uh, in force. And it was this, that there would be a board of elders. They were elected for three-year terms on staggering terms, so no group of elders was always changing at the same time. Totally misunderstood the word of God. It's an office, a board, rather, but it was there. And deacons, and there was to be a minister. The minister was the man who was sort of in charge. Well, As I studied the New Testament, I realized that wasn't biblical. But legally, that's what we had, and without we couldn't change it without getting some lawyers involved. So I thought, well, even though we cannot legally change that, we can still change the way we function. And so I began to say to the elders, you men are the ones that God has called to oversee this church, to manage it. I've never been ordained as an elder. My ordination is to be a minister of the gospel, a preacher and a teacher of the word and plant congregations and so on. Work of evangelism. You men are ordained to oversee the flock, so you must run the church, and I submit to you. And so we functioned that way. Well, the elders hired a young man And that's what they did. They hired him to be the youth minister. He had flaming red hair. His hair was 
about as long as Jim Grinnell's usually is a week before he gets a haircut. He's not quite there yet. We had a family in the church. The father was an ex-Navy man. He wore a burr haircut, and he had a son who wore a burr haircut. And they were bothered by the red hair that was not burr on the youth leader. And so one day this woman came to meet with me, and she was very upset. She said, you know, Dan has long hair, and that's making it hard for us to enforce a burr haircut on our son, and you need to make him cut his hair. I said, well, I don't oversee Dan, and the elders do. <laughs> and uh, one thing, I will never run this church. The elders run the church. However, and by that time we were in the midst of all the charismatic turmoil, and I said, no one will ever tell me what to preach. I will preach the Word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit and sound exegesis, but I will not run the church. You need to talk to the elders. She left that meeting and got on the phone and started calling everybody, telling them I said I was going to run the church and nobody had any say in it. Now the elders knew that that was not my heart and they heard about this. And so three of them went to meet with this woman and they said, here's what you've been spreading around over the telephone. We know that's not Jim's heart. We really don't believe he said that. And after a while it became evident the woman was spreading a lie. And they said to her, you are now barred from coming to church on Sunday. You can have no presence in the body until you come to church on Sunday morning and stand before the church and confess your sin and repent and ask forgiveness. We didn't see her for several weeks. But we were a church that was like a family, and all of her friends were in the church. <laughs> Lo and behold, one Sunday, she and her husband and son arrived. She went before the church. She confessed her sin. She repented and asked forgiveness. The elders laid hands on her and prayed for her, and she was received with open arms. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> These men proved themselves to really be elders. I'll tell you, it's a dangerous thing to be a gossip sowing dissension in the body of Christ. The attitude of the elders toward their work must be one of humility. I've told you before, probably twice, of the vision I had in New England one time when dealing with a very difficult situation, the vision of the bride of Christ, the church, and I'll not tell it again because I've told it before. But from that time on, I have realized that the church is not an organization. It is not a group of people. This is the sacred bride of Christ. And no elder would dare put his fingerprints upon that bride. This is something sacred that we have in the body of our Lord. None of us wants to lord it over. None of us wants to run the show. But to have an accountable stewardship of the bride. And that's why in Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. Now, I don't know about you, 
but giving an account to God just for Jim Garrett is something. But think about this. If you're an elder, you not only have to give account for your own life, but an elder is someday going to have to stand before God and give account for every soul in the church. Why would anyone ever become an elder? Either he's an ambitious idiot or he is called of God. And if one is called of God to be an elder and he doesn't become one, he's disobedient. <laughs> because who would ever want to take on the responsibility of standing before God and giving answer for a bunch of people. True elders, as we say, know that no man can make a man an elder. It is the Holy Spirit that does it. This is the Lord's church. Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. Our task is to cooperate and to the degree we can to do it the way that he and the apostles under the guidance of the Holy Spirit outline how and what the church would be. He is the chief shepherd. Elders are under shepherds representing him seeking to do his will. Father, we're thankful for the very clear picture that you give in your word as to what you would have church leadership be. Guide us as to the Holy Spirit. We seek, Father, to fulfill your will. In Jesus' name, amen.